From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, Dr. Terry Hamlin. At the beginning of the year, she was named CEO of the Center for Discovery. Dr. Hamlin's been with the Center for 40 years, and this morning she joins us to talk about her agenda in her new role as CEO and some of the challenges facing the Center for Discovery. Coping with burnout. More than a third of adults report feeling fatigue most or all of the time, while the diagnosis of burnout are at an all-time high. What's leading us to feel so exhausted, and how can we develop greater resilience? We talk to behavioral coach Courtney Edwards about how to cope. Living with bears. We speak to the DEC's regional bear biologist about precautions to reduce conflicts with the black bears that call New York home. And WorkShift Live, James B. Huntington is here with local economic perspective. First, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A bipartisan group of Senate negotiators has unveiled a $118 billion agreement on immigration and border security. The proposal also offers aid to Israel and Ukraine. But House Republicans say they will block this. NPR's Mara Liason reports House GOP lawmakers say that instead they plan to pass a standalone bill for Israeli aid. House Republicans say they will vote on a bill that would give about $17 billion in aid to Israel. But they're refusing to take up a bipartisan bill negotiated in the Senate that would help control the border and provide aid to Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan. House Republicans originally insisted on a conservative immigration bill as the price Democrats had to pay to get aid to Ukraine. But now the Democrats have agreed to the most conservative immigration bill in decades, Donald Trump has told Republicans not to vote for any bipartisan border legislation. The political calculus is that the bipartisan bill might actually help control the border, and that might help President Biden in the election. Mara Eliason, NPR News. Separately, a group of Republican governors joined Texas GOP Governor Greg Abbott at the southern U.S. border yesterday. Arkansas GOP Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders says lawmakers have to do more. Congress has to step up when every single person knows he could make changes and steps right now today to help secure our border and protect our country. But House Republican lawmakers seem to have a different view as they won't take up the proposed immigration measure at all. The U.S. has conducted dozens of airstrikes in the Middle East over the weekend. The latest strikes were against Houthi militants in Yemen. The Pentagon says the militants were preparing to fire missiles at commercial ships in the Red Sea. The U.S. also targeted militants in Iraq and Syria. The U.S. has said these won't be the only strikes. They're in retaliation for the drone attack that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan a week ago. Stocks opened lower this morning as Boeing reported another production problem. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell about 230 points in early trading. Boeing, whose shares are part of the Dow Index, says it may have to delay delivery of about 50 new 737 aircraft after finding holes that were improperly drilled in the jets. Production problems at Boeing and one of its suppliers, Spirit Aerosystems, have been under a microscope since a panel blew out of an Alaska Airlines jet shortly after takeoff last month. One of the country's largest meat packers, Tyson Foods, reported better-than-expected quarterly profits after shuttering several of its chicken and beef processing plants. Tyson says its wholesale prices for chicken and pork were down in the most recent quarter, but beef prices are still climbing. Many cattle ranchers thinned their herds two years ago in response to drought. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is now down 240 points. This is NPR News. Another atmospheric river is pummeling California with heavy rain and wind gusts that are hitting tropical storm strength. The National Weather Service says there is an extremely dangerous weather situation unfolding in the Hollywood and Beverly Hills areas of Southern California. Officials in Chile say forest fires have killed at least 112 people. Some 300 others are missing. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports these numbers are likely to soar. Discussing the devastation of more than 160 forest fires, President Gabriel Boric warned the country was facing a, quote, tragedy of very great magnitude. He's decreed two days of national mourning. The worst fires are raging in central Chile around Valparaiso, northwest of the capital and the tourist town of Viña del Mar, site of an international music festival. More than 1,500 homes have been damaged, according to the Interior Ministry. It's common 
common for wildfires to hit during the hot and dry summer months, but none have been this lethal in Chile. Higher than normal temperatures are being blamed on this year's El Nino weather pattern. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. The president of El Salvador is claiming he's won re-election. Nearly a third of votes have been counted, and Nayib Bukele says he has more than 80 percent of the vote. Ballot counting is slow, however, and election officials say they are having trouble. President Bukele has won support in El Salvador by cracking down on gangs, but activists in the country say he is hurting civil liberties. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News, in Washington. Support for NPR comes from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macbound.org. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The Center for Discovery is a major research and specialty center where individuals from around New York State and the world travel to receive highly advanced care and access to groundbreaking research and treatment for a myriad of disabilities and complex conditions. Each year, the center serves more than 1,200 children, adults, and families. At the beginning of this year, Dr. Teresa Hamlin was named CEO of the Center for Discovery. The facilities board chose her in October of 2023 to succeed Patrick Dollard, who is now a senior advisor to the organization. Dr. Hamlin joined the center in 1983 and was named president in 2020. And Dr. Hamlin joins us this morning. Good morning, Dr. Hamlin. Good morning, Tim. How are you? I'm well, thank you for being here. Uh, you've been at the Center for Discovery for, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, for 40 years. What's what's motivated you about working at the Center for Discovery? My goodness, yes, 40 years. Um, <laughs> my main focus and motivation really has always been the children and adults that we serve. Just seeing their resilience, their strength, and their potential inspires me every single day that I come to work. And our mission really is to provide the highest quality of care, support, and, and opportunities for growth and development for the children and the adults that we serve. And we serve little babies here at the center, and we serve adults who are into their 80s. But just being able to witness their progress, their achievements, just brings me joy. <laughs> and, um, you know, it just it keeps me coming to work every single day. And we just, you know, along with the team here, continuously strive for excellence in everything that we do. But, you know, it's it's an amazing place to be. And we mentioned the groundbreaking research and treatment for all of those folks that are coming to the center. What what are some of the biggest challenges that face the Center for Discovery? I think one of our biggest challenges that we're facing right now is just navigating the aftermath of COVID-19 pandemic. And we're not alone in that, but it was just not easy to get even routine things done during the pandemic. So one of the things that we're looking at is addressing all of our infrastructure repairs here that were really put on hold, um, but are necessary to ensure the safety and well-being of individuals that we care for and our staff and we're also recreating a sense of community and, and teamwork, which is so crucial for our staff. And it was it was really difficult during the pandemic to work closely with each other. You know, Zoom just doesn't really <laughs> doesn't cut it. Right. Um, and people wearing masks and shields doesn't allow for that level of interaction that you need when you know you're caring for people with complex conditions. So we need we need to be together again and to share our ideas and and rebuild trusting relationships. And I think that's really, really important for all of us. And, you know, another big challenge is staffing. And again, we're not alone. People are seeing this all over the place, but um, finding qualified and dedicated individuals to join our team you know, can be challenging, um, but we're, we're really committed to attracting and retaining top talent here to provide the best care and education for our kids and, and our adults here. We do have a, a really great group of people in the community. They're called Friends of the Center. They're not paid by the Center, but they know us. They know our heart, um, and they know our work, and they're really helping spread the word about what we do and, and especially how we support the people that work here as well, our staff. So raising awareness about the Center is really a priority for us. And you know, even having the opportunity, Tim, to be with you here, 
um, on WJFF radio is really important to us, but we'll be actively engaging in the community, engaging with the community, and forging new connections and relationships to spread um, the word about the important work that we do here. But I have to say, despite despite these challenges, there's just so many positive things happening at the center, um, which makes us an extraordinary and exciting and fulfilling place to work. And, you know, it's right in our backyard. It's right here in Sullivan County. So, um, it you know, there's there's just so many exciting things, um, despite <laughs> despite some of these real challenges that, that we're facing right now. Well, I know it's only been a, a month in your role as CEO, um, but so how do you tackle some of those challenges? What are some of the first things on your agenda as CEO to tackle some yeah. of those challenges? Sure. Yep. I think, you know, one of the first things that we're focused on, and I've had many, many webinars with staff and meetings with our staff and families, um, but we're focused on on excellence, internal, an internal focus on excellence, really strengthening our staff's education programs teaching about our model here, which is called the Healthy Six, and ensuring that everybody knows what to do, how to do it, and and why it matters. You know, one example, and today, right after this call, we have um, the reopening of our cafe. So we had to close our cafe down during the during the pandemic, but we're reopening it as the pharmacy, pharmacy with an F, where food is medicine. And we're really teaching staff about the food that's grown here at the center why it's important um, to have food that doesn't have all of your additives and, and processed um, components of food, and really teaching about food and its medicinal properties and creating a really exciting and educational experience for our staff. Nutritious food really does matter when you're trying to support our brains and our bodies. It matters for everybody, not just for the individuals that we care for. But the pharmacy will be a lot of fun. Um, staff can come to the pharmacy, they can, there's a touchscreen TV there where they can say, okay, what's the menu today? Or today I'm not really feeling very energetic. What type of foods, what food properties would be important for me to eat today? And you push the button and out comes your FX, um, not an RX, but your prescription for what food in the cafe would really help your mindset today. And so there's lots of different features like that, but it's really trying to teach our model here. As I said, it's the Healthy Six model, but ensuring that everybody knows what they're doing and how come that's important to them as an individual here. We're also you know, working on, on my agenda, the infrastructure improvements. We're going to repave miles of walkways here, replace roofs, paint houses, and really beautifying all of our properties around the center. Um, and these improvements will enhance the, not the overall environment and accessibility for staff, but environments are really, really important for, for learning, setting the stage for learning, and it, they're important for our mental health and well-being as well. And, we're, you know, we're fortunate to be in a country setting here where there's a lot of greenery, where there's mostly blue skies, things that, that really change your mood and your affect. And so we're going to make sure that all of our environments are, are where we want them to be to create an environment that fosters learning and development. Um, we're also looking at local level support. Um, we're supporting school districts by leveraging our highly skilled clinical teams here, our occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech pathologists, teachers, and psychologists. And the goal is really to provide a lot of assistance to school districts that have a really high demand for services right now, just, I think, due to the lack of support during the COVID pandemic. So we're going to be expanding a lot of our our existing services right now. We do provide um, training and education in school district direct services. I mean, we're we're as far as Westchester County. We have staff in Rockland County, Orange County, Ulster, Putnam County, but we're going to expand our local services as well. Um, And that involves really collaborating with school districts, um, providing clinicians to support the needs of, of the students in schools and their families. And we're also working with a lot of our funders, New York State Education Department, OPWDD, the Department of Health, and many of our donors to continue to educate them on the work that we do here. So it's it's well beyond um, just providing direct services. I think our training and education programs are 
really incredible but really important right now for just people living on this planet. And we really have the potential to transform lives for the better. And, it, you know, it's, again, it's not just for those who have challenges, but our work can really, can really help everyone. So I think these priorities demonstrate our commitment to internal growth, to community engagement, and just expanding support for those who need it the most. And it's just really, really important right now. So it, it's, it's a big <laughs> agenda, um, but I think we have the staff that can just, that can make it work here. So it's, it's really very exciting. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Dr. Teresa Hamlin. She was named CEO of the Center for Discovery at the beginning of the year. Uh, Dr. Hamlin, you can I can hear the excitement in your voice, uh, your passion about the Center for Discovery after working there uh, in various roles. Uh, what, what excites you the most about this new role as CEO? Oh, I am. And yes, you can hear my passion because I, I am really, really passionate, but I'm so excited just to about being able to teach and support our teams here to foster collaborative work environments where where everybody here, regardless of what position you're in, but you feel supported and you feel valued. I'm a very strong believer in the power of teamwork and active listening um, to the ideas and perspectives of, of my staff and, and our families. And the staff here know that I have an open door policy my goal is really to create a culture of transparency and trust. And I'm just so committed to supporting our team members here and providing them with the resources that they, that they need to be successful. Um, I'm also very eager to collaborate with more families and school districts, as I said, and other stakeholders at the state level, just to ensure that individuals with complex conditions with disabilities receive the support that they need and the funding that they need in order to thrive. So I, I really believe that only together can we make a positive impact and create opportunities for growth and independence for all of those that we serve. What are some of the projects that are on the horizon uh, that you want people to know about? I know that the Children's Specialty Hospital in Rock Hill is is scheduled to open this year. Uh, I'm sure that's one of them. What are some of the other projects on the horizon? Yeah, I'll start with the hospital because, yes, that is, I know we've talked about this for quite some time. It's been a significant project that we've dedicated years to. Um, It will be a tremendous resource for the entire state, not just our county, not just for local people here, but for the state with a a really groundbreaking intensive assessment and treatment program in it. It will also have a training institute called the Alamany Learning Center for professionals and parents so that we can ensure that our impact reaches far and wide, so that's nationally and internationally. Um, We expect to open this summer, but I will say, I'll put a little plug in here, we do need uh, direct care staff to join our team, so people who may not have experience in the field, but we can teach them what it is that needs to be done um, to support individuals inside this hospital assessment center, and we also need more nurses, so I think everybody needs more nurses, but um, but it's an incredible and exciting opportunity um, for for folks who want to work here, and it will just impact so many people well beyond our state. Um, we're hoping that this will be a national model so that kids with autism and other individuals with complex conditions get the real support that they need. Um, our, our, I believe strongly our work here just truly matters, not just locally, but everywhere. And we have a unique model that really harnesses the power of interdisciplinary teams to address complex problems faced by children and adults with complex conditions. And it's a lifestyle model approach here that represents the future of complex care, and it supports really anyone who has a chronic condition, you know, folks with heart conditions or diabetes. And we have so many cases of diabetes, too, right now. But this model really can help everyone get better. So we're working on spreading the word about our work. Um, there's just so, so many children and families in need right now, and, um, and we can help. So I'm hoping that people see us as a major resource um, you know, for, for this county and, and for the state and beyond. You grew up locally. You're from Liberty. How, how does it feel to be making such an impact in the county where you grew up? Yes, I am a very proud uh, Liberty graduate. 
Um, but <laughs> I have to say, it's not me alone. I'm I'm really part of a team. I have the privilege of maybe being the captain of the team right now. But I I think I learned early on that a leader is only as good as her his or her teammates. So it's everyone who works at the center, regardless of their title, regardless of their job, that makes the difference collectively. And we make the difference collectively. And and those of us who are from this county are very proud <laughs> to have a world-class and world-renowned facility here in Sullivan County. But but it's all of us together. I, I could never do it without without the team here. They're just they're the most incredible team members I've I've ever been privileged to be with. So it's exciting. <laughs> Uh, before we go, if there's if there's one thing you want people to know about the Center for Discovery, what would that be? I think it's that um, the Center for the Center for Discovery is just this incredible place to work. We have tremendous heart here um, and healing, and it's a place where everyone can grow as a person and make life changing impacts on the lives of others, and it just enriches your life as much as you enrich other people's lives when you work here. And I think, you know, our team is not only caring and brilliant, but it's also dedicated to our mission of helping people reach their full potential. And we just, we believe in the power of collaboration and interdisciplinary approaches to provide the best possible care and support. And so working at the center is not just a job, it's an opportunity to make a difference and to be part of a team that's committed to changing lives. And it's just, my message is, it's just so rewarding to be a part of the center. And uh, and Tim, before we leave, I just want to thank you so much for bringing you know, amazing stories and, and news to all of us um, that impacts our lives here. And you have tremendous impact on all of us. So I really look forward to continuing our work together and, and hopefully we'll work more closely and, and really change outcomes for people. And I think that's what we're all, that we're all focused on so that life is better for people in general living on this planet. Yeah. So. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, thank you for that. And we look forward to continuing our partnership and, uh, the great work that you guys are doing at the Center for Discovery. Um, Dr. Teresa Hamlin uh, is the new CEO of the Center for Discovery, and uh, you can find more information about the center at thecenterfordiscovery.org. Dr. Hamlin, thank you so much. I can hear the the messages beeping in the background. You you need to go, so we'll let you go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. We'll take a break, and when we come back, Work Shift Live, James B. Huntington, with Local Economic Perspective. This is Radio Catskill. Radio Catskill supporters include SUNY Sullivan, a community college in the Sullivan Catskills focused on preparing students for the future. More information at sunysullivan.edu. Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the Gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And listeners like you, who donate at WJFFRadio.org. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, independent, grassroots, global news. Our reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. People speaking for themselves, providing unique and sometimes provocative perspectives on global events. Democracy Now!, weekdays at noon, right here on Radio Catskill. Greetings, I'm Matt Hurtado. Join me on a journey where pixels meet melodies and controllers become conductors. This is Virtual Soundscapes, a show that transports you to the sonic realms of video game magic. In this journey, we'll uncover the hidden treasures of video game soundtracks from the classics to modern day and speak with industry veterans. Join me for the debut of Virtual Soundscapes on February 15th at 10 p.m. Only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. This is Radio Catskill. It's Monday, and every Monday we get to hear from James B. Huntington with Local Economic Perspective. He's a local economist and author, and he's joining us live on the phone. Good morning. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, listeners. All right, James B. Huntington, let's dive right in. Friday's jobs report came out. 
How did that look? Yes, at first glance, it looked very good because we had 353,000 net new non-farm positions. I had two estimates, and the result was almost equal to both of them combined. So that was superb. On the other hand, there's a good amount of indifferent and sort of doubtful news here. Employment held at 3.7%, the seasonally adjusted variety. Number of unemployed was down 200,000. We have the number claiming no interest in working dropped 716,000. On the other hand, the number of people who are working part-time for economic reasons or working less than full-time while looking for more hours at something went up again 200,000 and it's now at 4.4 million we have wages which is a good thing going up more than inflation again and the american job shortage number or ajsn though went up 1.2 million meaning latent demand mostly on seasonal factors went up substantially from december to january so we're in good shape but we're getting to have some questions about how the number of jobs can keep going up and up and unemployment doesn't go anywhere and also a whole string of other categories of people who they refer to as being marginally attached to the labor force is not improving so i'm wondering if there is something going on such as people getting multiple jobs and those numbers like the 353,000 reflecting how many new jobs instead of necessarily the number of people who are working because people will often fib about having more than one job especially to their employee employers but they'll also hmm, be likely to do that on surveys also. So we have a question here. We're doing well, but we didn't burn any barns with this report here, like some people said. It was good, but not great. Also some questions about in, uh, inflation and, and interest rates. Um, what happened last week and also, you know, what happened with uh, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell uh, saying yesterday on 60 Minutes that, you know, they need some more evidence before cutting rates? Yes, well, they decided not to hold rates, so they've been sitting for about six months. Where they are now, they could cut them. The, the concern is that inflation is still over 3.3%, uh, somewhere 3.4%, 3.5%, depending on wh what measure they exactly have. And it's really not quite good enough. It's close. They would like to, the market would absolutely love to get lower interest rates, even though the stock market has been doing superbly lately. There have been a lot of people hoping that they would go down. So it's not really going anywhere. But it may in the future, but when, when they say they won't or might in a month or two, they really don't have any idea because if the data was good enough for them to cut rates, they'd cut it this time. So we'll see how it goes. If we get a little more improvement on inflation, they might cut it something like a quarter of a percent, but it's not going to be a massive amount, and the actual effect of that would not be very big. So generally, we're doing just fine with these things, but it doesn't look like interest rates are going to come crashing down. Right. Yeah, well, and Chairman Powell said on that in that interview with 60 Minutes that aired last night, uh, quote, our confidence is rising. We just want some more confidence before we take that very important step of beginning to cut interest rates, end quote. And the Dow reacting, the stock market reacting this morning, uh, Dow slipped nearly 400 points as folks are worried about the potential for fewer rate cuts than expected. So we'll keep an eye on that. Um, what about quarterly results for some of the big tech stock uh, companies last week, Alphabet, Microsoft. How did that turn out last week? Yes, we had two big ones. Alphabet, which is really mainly Google, 13% revenue growth. 
the highest since early 2022. Sales of 86 plus billion, or staggering amounts here, which were a little bit above the estimate here. So Microsoft. Their revenues increased 18%. It's now at $62 billion here. So that also came in a little higher. So they did well, but they didn't blow away expectations. They just did a little better with them. So the stock market actually was not really happy with these two products, and a number of people sold them. There were the, they went down in price. They're still doing well, but just nothing huge here. Mm-hmm. So overall, how how is the economy doing these days? We're, are we doing very well? Is that what we think here? Or, or is well, it- this was a Paul Krugman column on this titled "Our Economy Isn't Goldilocks; It's Better." <laughs> so the Goldilocks thing you will often see is somewhere between too low and too high, and Goldilocks is just right, based on a bowl of porridge she had in the story. <laughs> so it's mm, but. Instead of saying it's just about right, I mean, Krugman is saying that it really has done better with that. I happen to agree with that. It's it's better than it looks here. We have also the wage growth I mentioned is a good thing, and inflation is lower. It's not down to the 2% that the Fed would like. Some people are getting carried away with thinking that it was always 2%. Until the last couple of years, no, not, it's not true at all. I mean, 2% is a maximum ultimate. It's sort of like a, a golfer shooting par or better than par. It's not just the average for them. It's a good, I mean, that's an average for a good pro. So if you get par on a hole, you should be thinking that you're doing well, unless you're really in the, in the, unless someone listening in is one of the top 10 or 20 golfers in the world. And the same thing goes with inflation. But just because we're not at 2% doesn't mean it's way, way high or a major problem. So generally, our economy really, I mean, between everything, between the number of jobs we're getting, the lower unemployment and all of this we're doing very well really all right let's look at the numbers let's look at uh, the rest of the stock uh, oil precious metal prices last week how did, how did things end up how did they change okay over the past week gold finished early this morning at 2022 down seven dollars silver 2242 which is down 60 cents both of those People really were buying stocks, as you will see over the last week, and sort of ignoring gold and silver. That could change any time. The Dow, 38,654. That's up 545 over the past week, and that includes the 300 or so it dropped the day those earnings reports, earnings reports came out and the failure to the failure to lower interest rates. NASDAQ, 15,629, up 174, quite similar proportionally. Oil went down to 71.95. It dropped over $6. It fell back the gain it had over the previous three weeks. So I was saying it hadn't, the increase hadn't turned up at the pumps, and now it looks like it won't. So it's down, it's actually a dollar lower than it was a few weeks ago. Bitcoin, 42970 up 724 That's really like hanging out for it. It is so volatile that you can't take it seriously that we're going anywhere. It might drop 700 It's It's doing okay. It's hanging on quite well, really. Pound, British. 1.2675 up a, down a quarter of a cent a little lower euro went down about 82 hundredths of a cent to 1.0769 they have more problems with inflation and other things in Europe so it's going to hold back these currencies from doing well and the 100 yen coin from Japan sat once again at its common 67 cents all right James B Huntington with workshift live every monday Local Economic Perspective. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, listeners. All right, we'll talk to you next Monday. And we'll take a quick break. When we come back, some tips on living with...
bears, not the bear market, but the actual bears that live in New York State. This is Radio Chatskill. Hi, I'm Kusar Grace KG, host of the Music Emporium. Two hours of great music right here on Radio Catskill. Sometimes I start out with a little bit of talk concerning things in the world for the week. Then I'll jump into some tunes that you will enjoy. Jazz, funk, blues, and more. So come and hang out with me. The Music Emporium. Tuesday night, 7 to 9, right here on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Black bears are the only indigenous bear species in New York. They exist throughout the state, and the majority of them, about 85%, can be found in the Adirondacks and here in the Catskills. The New York Department of Environmental Conservation is going to be at the Ellenville Public Library and Museum this evening with a presentation on local bear species and what to do if you encounter one. I spoke to the DEC's regional bear biologist, Jonathan Russell. A wildlife in general is notoriously kind of difficult to get a good count on. Um, they don't kind of line up and hold up their hands or anything. Um, but there's a minimum estimate of about 6,000, 8,000 bears um, in New York State with about, you know, 2,500 um, in the, the Catskill region. And I'll stress that's really a minimum count. What are some of the common misconceptions about bears? Sure, sure. A lot, lot of questions. Um one is that, uh, in fact, black bears are the only bear species we have in New York State. Um, another common one I hear quite a bit um, is that people think bears have poor eyesight. They actually have um, pretty good eyesight, pretty similar to ours, um, and they can even see color. And uh, another one is that um, when a black bear stands up on its back legs, a lot of people think that's a sign of aggression, when in reality they're just trying to... Um, see a little bit better or use those wind currents to smell. Um, they're typically a little better higher off the ground. One of the other things I looked up before this conversation was that bears, one of the myths is bears can't run downhill, but in fact, they're kind of fast. Yeah, yeah, they're quite fast, um, and they, they can run downhill. Um, I think I've heard estimates of um, them being able to run for, for short distances, um, like up to 30 miles an hour even. When folks encounter a bear, what are some things that they should be aware of? Sure. And the first thing I always tell people is, is don't panic. Um, it's not said a lot, but bears really are typically um, more afraid of us than, than we are of them. Um, you want to give that animal you know, a wide berth, um, not approach it or, or attempt to feed it or anything like that, obviously. But I always encourage people, if you, if you do see a bear in the woods, um, and it's just kind of walking away. Um, just take that moment to appreciate seeing um, certainly one of New York State's more impressive mammals. If you happen to see a bear near where you live or, or in the area in which you live, does it indicate anything? Is the bear looking for something or is it just, you know, like you said, it's it's just out there in that natural environment? Yeah. So at this point, uh, our area has a, a very robust bear population. And, and they live in a lot of areas, people do. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of areas now that um, previously didn't have bear populations that now do. Um, so if you do see a bear in your area, or even if you haven't seen one yet, it's always a good idea just to be conscious of not leaving any potential food sources out. Um, and that's typically, you know, garbage, um, bird feeders, um, keep your grills clean, don't feed pets outside. Just take those precautions. So you can avoid conflicts. And, and do people actually feed bears, like leave food for them? Um, so I will say that a feeding of, of bear or deer is illegal in New York um, and, and completely unnecessary. Um, some people might feel, feel bad for bears, um, but really providing food is a, is a wholly selfish act. Um, the reality is there's plenty of natural food available to them, the reason why they will take advantage of human-derived food sources if they're, if they're available, like, like trash and bird feeders, is that there's just uh, way more calories um, can, be, can be gotten in a, in a shorter amount of time, um, whereas it might take a, a bear hours eating blueberries. Um, he could raid your garbage can and grab that lasagna from, from dinner last night and um, get way more calories from that. Um, but we really try to 
encourage people, like I said, um, to keep those food sources secured because the more bears do kind of learn to associate people or houses with, with food, that food reward, um, the more they're going to approach other houses and potentially get themselves into trouble, um, cause property damage, that kind of stuff. When you mentioned the, you know, eating blueberries and, and natural things that are occurring for them, they nearly eat mm-hmm. anything out there, like grasses, berries, fruits, nuts, seeds, but then their behavior could be changed if they're encountering more human food, and that could create human-bear conflict, I guess. Yeah, that's correct. Like I said, the more we can um, kind of keep bears wild, um, that's best for both the people and the bears. I was also wondering about, you know, with your, your pets, I mean, my dog will chase uh, anything off of the, the property. Uh, I'm not sure what she should, would do in the case of a bear, but how do you keep your dog safe in bear country? Yeah, it's always a good idea if you have bears in the area or have seen bears around your home if you're taking a dog at night. Um, keep it on a leash. Um, typically, when we do see conflicts with dogs or bears, it's because a dog runs up to a bear and a bear reacts defensively. Um, so, like I said, if you're if you're hiking um, where there's quite a few bears seen, or or like I said, around your home if you're seeing bears, um, especially at night, just kind of keeping that dog on a leash, and again, making sure you know you don't leave any any food attractants out that could attract bears. There are a lot of uh, safety tips at the DEC website, dec.ny.gov, and you have partnered with BearWise uh, to talk about a lot of those as well. One of them for folks, particularly in our rural area, how to protect against livestock, bees, crops, and orchards. Can you talk a little bit about that, too? Sure, yeah. So um, if it's a smaller area, um, you know, if you place it, um, goats, chickens, sheep, that kind of thing, um, electric fence is, is really the most effective way to exclude bears. And um, backyard chickens especially become very popular, um, both as a hobby and, you know, uh, a way to provide your own food. Um, and we want people, you know, to really uh, consider putting out an electric fence. Um, even if you haven't had issues in the past, um, try to be proactive there. And you've got your Living with Bears presentation at the uh, Ellenville Public Library coming up. As the regional bear biologist for the DEC, why is it important for you to go out into the community with this information to libraries like this? Yeah, again, um, you know, we have a lot of places in our region that maybe um, didn't have bears or as many bears, say, 20 years ago, or a lot of people that may have um, moved to this area from from a, a more urban or suburban area that aren't as quite as savvy dealing with wildlife and bears. So we want to give that opportunity to pro- provide the information to the public um, and have them be able to ask us any questions they might have. You also have a regional bear program at the DEC. Folks can get involved with that. What's that about and how can they get involved? Yeah, so uh, there are some citizen science opportunities if people want to want to help us out. Um, one of which being the IC Mammals program. And uh, that's actually uh, an app that you can download um, either through the, uh, the Apple Store or uh, Google Play. And that allows you to upload pictures or report sightings of evidence of bears um, or any other mammals you might see. And that kind of helps us um, keep a tra- track of distribution and population. Before we go, as a regional bear biologist, uh, bears are your business. Uh, what is it that uh, fascinates you and uh, keeps you interested in this line of work? Yeah, um, you know, I really enjoy uh, working with people to, to resolve those issues. And like I said, kind of keep both people and bears safe. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, bears truly are one of New York State's, um, you know, uh, one thing that um, it's, you know, considered charismatic megafauna. Um, bears are, you know, impressive creatures, um, incredibly tough, um, intelligent, and um, yeah, it's a really interesting animal to work with. We've been talking to Jonathan Russell, who is the New York DEC's regional bear biologist. Presentation at the Ellenville Public Library and Museum is tonight at 6. More information at eplm.org and more information at dec.ny.gov about how to live responsibly with black bears and become bear wise. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Yep. Thanks for your time, Tim. We'll take a break. And when we come back, burnout, more than a third of adults report feeling fatigue most or all of the time. And diagnoses of burnout are at an all-time high. What's leading us to feel so exhausted? How can we develop greater resistance? We'll talk to behavioral coach Courtney Edwards about how to cope. This is Radio Chatska. It's easy to assume that our political opponents only care about winning. But my work suggests that ultimately people are motivated by this desire to protect themselves. They're motivated by a sense of vulnerability. Why the partisan divide may not be as wide as it seems, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Today at 1 on Radio Catskill. You're on the go, and Radio Catskill can go with you. Listen live to Radio Catskill on your phone. Just type wjffradio.org into your browser and listen wherever you are. Stay up to date on local news, culture, and NPR on the go on your phone with Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. There are a lot of studies showing that burnout is on the increase across the world and in many different areas of work. Courtney Edwards of Alchemy Coaching will be at the Ellenville Public Library Museum tomorrow for a presentation on burnout and how you can better prevent and manage it. She's going to join us now with a preview. Good morning, Courtney. Good morning, Tim. How are you? Well, thank you. And I think I maybe feel tired like everybody else in the world. Uh, <laughs> is that is that yeah. an accurate uh, definition of burnout, like that feeling of fatigue? What is what is burnout? Yeah, so that is one of the three big uh, markers that we look at, mental and physical. Uh, sometimes it's described as depletion or exhaustion, but that persistent tiredness of body, soul, and mind that we can't quite get out of. I My layperson's definition of burnout is chronic stress that exceeds our ability to cope with it. And so when we're confronted with stressors that just seem to be coming at you like the waves of the ocean and, and you can't quite get your feet on the ground, that is uh, one of the things that will lead to burnout. Um, some other things that we look at when we're kind of looking at the clinical definition of burnout, so as I mentioned, mental and physical exhaustion, uh, cynicism, so just feeling like what I do doesn't really matter, why am I doing this, um, my boss is a jerk, you know, sort of particularly if those thoughts are new um, and haven't always been a part of your thought process. And then feelings of uh, just not feeling motivated, having a hard time getting up and getting going, you know, folks who maybe previously loved their jobs and now they don't want to go anymore. Um, those would be some of the, the kind of behaviors and attitudes, thoughts that we would be looking at to to not make a diagnosis because it's not a diagnosed condition, but but to be able to point to burnout and say, I think this might be what's going on for you right now. Mm-hmm. You mentioned stressors. What's the difference between stress and burnout? So stress in and of itself is not bad. It is a part of everyday life. We really can't avoid it. And in a lot of ways, stress serves a very effective survival function in that it alerts us to when changes need to be made in our environment uh, or we need to start utilizing our coping strategies uh, better or differently. Um, so somebody can have stress and not have burnout. Uh, the connection really is, like I mentioned, when stress is chronic, uh, when it exceeds our coping strategies, and we just can't get uh, a break from it. Uh, so everyday, regular life stressors, unavoidable. They actually do serve a, a helpful purpose in a lot of ways. And, and when we're able to confront a stressor, cope with it, and move on, it doesn't have any lasting damage. It is just a part of everyday life. It is that sort of regularity, that chronic stressor um, that we can't uh, cope with in, in an effective way, that it becomes problematic. Do, does uh, burnout um, kind of mirror depression in, in a way, or is that sort of a similar thing? I think people who are experiencing burnout can feel depressed. 
And somebody who has an underlying mental health diagnosis of depression could be a little bit more prone to burnout. We do see certain populations that are more at risk uh, than others, and folks who have different mental health or physical challenges are at greater risk for burnout. Um, but there's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation there. Uh, I think they can both contribute to each other, um, but don't necessarily have to. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, some of the signs. Uh, we talked about fatigue. We talked about feeling apathetic or dissatisfied with work. Um, what are some of the other ways you know you're maybe on the road to burnout? Yeah, I think a lot of it is is that feeling of disillusion, um, feeling resentment. Uh, and this can be really tricky because one of the populations that's at risk for burnout are parents and educators. And so when you find yourself really having a hard time being patient with somebody that you care about and love or somebody that you're in service towards, those would be the kind of things that I hope people would take a a second and stop and and just sort of look inward and say, do I need some more um, support around this? Um, Like I mentioned, if, if you've loved your job historically or you've loved the role that you've participated in and now, you know, you're noticing more and more that, little things are are super irritating and you don't have the patience to deal with them or you used to love going to work and now every morning it's kind of a chore to get up and get out. Uh, Those would be the kind of things that I hope people would pay a little bit attention to. Mm -hmm. Is there anything physical that manifests itself like, you know, headaches or anything like that? Yeah, any kind of exhaustion, however that shows up in somebody's body, uh, can, can be a sign to pay attention to. So, um, headaches, muscle fatigue, lack of energy, maybe some changes in appetite, uh, sleep habits. Those would all be some indicators. It just gets tricky because those are indicators of a lot of things. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that mind-body connection, it's, it's often a little bit difficult to, you know, is this burnout? Is it depression? Right. Because you mentioned depression. A lot of those same physical um, ailments or conditions are our uh, symptoms or side effects of depression. So it, it sort of becomes a little bit of a, a guessing game. And so I think that's why it's helpful to look at the the multi-pronged pieces of burnout, you know, mm-hmm. that it is that mental and physical exhaustion. It is that, that mental cynicism or, or skepticism about what you're doing and that lack of motivation. And when they're all showing up together in tandem, that might be a good way to recognize that this is depression and not, or I'm sorry, burnout Mm -hmm. and not something like depression or anxiety or just, you know, the winter blues or whatever, whatever other things that we might deal with. Well, and we're, we're all so used to kind of going a hundred miles an hour uh, and you may not recognize this at like an early stage, or you might think it's something else. So this recognition is, is a key to, to understanding it. Let's talk a little bit about like some of the ways to cope. Well, what are some of those coping mechanisms? Yeah, well, and I love what you just said, because one of the things that I have experienced working with clients who are experiencing burnout is an internalized self-blame, particularly when it comes around the reduced motivation or the exhaustion. And I hear so often that people will, you know, come in and they'll say to me, I'm just so lazy. And when we then really start to look at what's going on for them in a bigger picture, it does often lead to to this idea of burnout and to just be able to take that step away and say, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not doing it wrong. Yeah. yeah. You know, like you just mentioned, like we're going a hundred miles an hour all the time. There are impossible demands placed upon us. You know, as I mentioned, helping professions, educators, parents, these are some of the populations that are most at risk and, a lot of it comes down to just not having the support necessary to meet all of the demands that are are put upon us. And then we look inside and say, well, I must be doing this wrong. I must be messing this up. And so I think one of the very first things that I would urge folks to do is to take that really critical look at their lives. You know, are you in a position where where you are simply being asked to meet an impossible standard? Is any of that self-imposed and can you make changes? Are there avenues towards self-advocacy, asking for and accepting help and being able to to get maybe a little bit uh, more support? I like to use the word scaffolding. I talk to folks and like, you just need to build some scaffolding around this thing that you're building right now because, you know, we can't necessarily just do it all on our own. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be one of the first things that I, I would urge folks to do. And then I like to use, um, there's a framework called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And I, I feel like folks probably know a little bit about that or they've heard of it before, but it really looks at how we have needs that need to be met in order to be our most highly functioning, authentic, self-actualized self. And it was a big psychology words, but it really is, <laughs> you know, do you have, um, are your biological needs being met? You know, are you adequately nourished? Are you hydrated? Are you sleeping? Are you moving your body in an effective way? Do you have a safe place to call home, you know, is there a place where you can come to rest and and to rejuvenate a little bit? Do you have relationships that are fulfilling? Are you engaged in a vocation that feels good and aligns with your values and your identity? Do you have spiritual practices? And we, you know, we sort of move up this hierarchy, and as those needs are met, it can create a really strong foundation for well-being, which is the opposite of burnout. And so inviting more of those things in, kind of looking at the holistic framework of your life, do you have those needs met uh, consistently? Um, and can that then create a counter to some of these external demands that, that we, can't always, we can't always turn off? Uh, a lot of this perspective really shifted for me. I just want to make note during the pandemic um, because you know, my, my first career was as a therapist, and, and what I've realized is you can't really therapy or counsel away a global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, for me, the focus became less about trying to fix something that was wrong, because I think the things that need to be fixed are, are just so enormous in this current moment that it's uh, really hard to ask one person, you know, to now therapy away or counsel away the things that are are harming you, but can we build up more resistance and more resilience through really comprehensive well-being practices to just sort of uh, give us, again, that scaffolding to be able to face these these challenges that are uh, so pervasive in our society. Yeah, and it's so it's so um, interesting and good to hear you say this about uh, this idea of self care that it's not selfish, it's not doing something wrong. It's it's natural if you're if you're moving so fast or you're not taking the care you need to, uh, and you're going right. to experience this burnout. And and that there are ways to to cope with it because uh, otherwise, how are you going to be able to you know help other people in your life? <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. I always use the analogy of the, you know, the oxygen mask on the airplane when people say, well, I can't take this time for myself. It's so selfish. I'm like, right, but if you want to actually serve the people that you love, you have to take care of yourself or nobody is going to get anything. You're not going to get what you need and the people that you're supporting or love or care about are not going to get what they need either. All right. Well, um, thank you for joining us with a preview of your talk uh, for to- it's tomorrow at the Ellenville public library and museum uh, at six. Uh, it's a yeah. uh, presentation that's free, but the library is asking for folks to register. So you can do that at eplm.org and uh, learn more about how to prevent and manage burnout. Uh, we've been talking to yeah. behavioral health coach, Courtney Edwards of alchemy coaching. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for this perspective. Uh, I think it's going to help me a little bit today. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, excellent. Thanks for the opportunity to share the message. I appreciate it. All right. That's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. Tomorrow on Radio Chat Skill, CEO of Bethel Woods Center for the Arts, Eric Francis, talks about the new camping that's available and more. Uh, that's tomorrow on Radio Chat Skill. You can listen at 10 or stream it online at wjffradio.org. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Narrowsburg Union and Catskills Curated, presenting products of regional artists, artisans, makers, and craftsmen. Gift wrapping and shipping available on site. NarrowsburgUnion.com The Cooperage Project in Honesdale, dedicated to building community through performance, learning, markets, and good times. TheCooperageProject.org And from listeners like you, who donate at WJFFradio.org. Hi there, this is Brian, host of The Secret Show. Friday nights at 9. I'll be playing a mix of indie, alternative, college, rock, and pop. Some new music and some old classics. That's The Secret Show, Friday nights at 9, only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Thank you.
WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, streaming online at WJFFRadio.org. This is Radio Catskill. On Point is coming up next, followed by Democracy Now! at noon. Today's forecast, sunshine at a height near 40, tonight's low 19, and tomorrow, high again near 40. WJFF, Radio Catskill, it's 11 o'clock.